achieve it is through preserving and then realizing the vision of two states. You're listening to the news on RTHK. AM, FM, and live online. This is Radio 3, an international station for an international city. This is Radio 3. You can tell I've been away for three months. I forgot to put the right introduction on. But very good morning to you. It's 8.03 in Hong Kong. It's Monday, it's the Tuesday, the 31st of January, 2023. This is Money Talk on Radio 3, and I'm Peter Lewis with the day's business headlines. The world's major central banks are poised to lift interest rates to 15-year highs this week. The Fed will deliver its latest monetary policy decision on Wednesday. And the European Central Bank and the Bank of England meet on Thursday. Investors expect the Fed to slow the pace of its monetary tightening to 25 basis points, raising rates to a range of 4.5 to 4.75%. That's the highest level since September 2007. In Asia, data due tomorrow is expected to show Hong Kong's economy remained in the doldrums in the last quarter of 2022, likely contracting 4% year-on-year, according to forecasts from Moody's Analytics. That will mean the local economy contracted 3.6% across the year. And the sell-off in Adani Group companies in India has extended into a third day, despite Asia's richest man, Gautam Adani, publishing a 413-page rebuttal of allegations of fraud by short-seller Hindenburg Research. Hindenburg published a 100-page report alleging that a two-year investigation found brazen stock manipulation and accounting fraud. Mr. Adani said Hindenburg's conduct is calculated securities fraud and called it an attack on India, Indian institutions and ambitions. And the Hindenburg report has raised more than 70 billion US dollars of market value in three days from Adani Group companies. And Adani's $2.5 billion follow-on share sale closes today. Hong Kong's exchange fund, which is used to defend the SAR's currency peg, reported its worst year on record in 2022, amid what the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, who managed the fund, described as a perfect storm. The fund lost 202.4 billion Hong Kong dollars, that's 25.8 billion US dollars last year, far surpassing its previous worst year in 2008, during the global financial crisis, when it lost 9.6 billion US dollars. And Germany's economy unexpectedly contracted in the final quarter of 2022. GDP in the Eurozone's biggest economy fell 0.2% between the third and fourth quarter last year following an upwardly revised half a percent expansion in the previous period. Economists had been expecting a flat reading. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Simon Cavender, partner at BDA Partners, and Andrew Sullivan, Managing Director at Outset Global. With a view from Japan is John Byrne, Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. On Wall Street, US stocks traded lower ahead of an anticipated 25 basis point rate increase by the Fed later this week. And with about 20% of the S&P 500 reporting earnings this week, including tech giants Apple, Meta Platforms, Amazon and Alphabet. The S&P 500 fell one and a third percent to 4,018. The Dow snapped a six-day winning streak, declining 261 points, or 0.8%, to 33,717. 
and the Nasdaq Composite dropped by 2% to 11,394. In Europe, the Stock 600 index fell 0.2% and London's FTSE 100 closed a quarter of a percent firmer. In Hong Kong, stocks tumbled by the most in seven weeks as profit-taking set in following the best start to a new year since 1984. The Hang Seng Index fell 619 points, or 2.7%, to 22,070, retreating from an 11-month high. However, the index is still up 11.6% since the start of the year. The Hang Seng Tech Index slumped 4.8%. That's the most since October 28th. And mainland China's stock markets reopened yesterday after being closed for the Lunar New Year holiday, with investors buoyed by data which showed a rebound in tourism during the week-long holiday. The CSI 300, which tracks the largest stocks listed in Shanghai and Shenzhen, rose half a percent to 4,201, having gained as much as 2.1% earlier in the day, putting it in a new bull market. The index has surged almost 20% since its late October trough. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil dropped 1.8% to $85.08 a barrel. Gold is trading at $1,922 an ounce. The US 10-year Treasury bond yield climbed four basis points to 3.55%. And in the currency markets, the US dollar index is a third of a percent firmer against a basket of currencies. The euro is trading at $1.08.5. The Japanese yen is trading at $1.30.5. One British pound buys one dollar twenty-three and a half cents and nine Hong Kong dollars and sixty-eight cents. Chinese yuan is at six point seven five and three quarters in offshore markets against the dollar this morning, and Bitcoin fell almost two percent, reflecting the overall risk-off sentiment. It's at twenty-two thousand eight hundred dollars this morning, and Asia stock markets look set to move to the upside at the open. The SX two hundred in Australia is already open up a quarter percent. The Nikkei two two five in Japan pretty well flat. Actually, the Cosby now in South Korea down half a percent, but it looks like the Hang Seng is going to rebound a little bit. Futures markets pointing to a gain of sixty points at the open this morning. Time's just gone at 8.09. Let's welcome our Tuesday guests over in our Queensway studio. We find Andrew Sullivan, Managing Director at Outset Global. Morning, Andrew. Hello, Andrew. Are you there? Yeah, good morning. Okay, good morning, Andrew. And here with me in a Broadcasting House, we have Simon Cavender, partner at BDA Partners. Morning to you, Simon. Morning, Peter. Um, so let's start having a look at uh, Chinese, China's reopening, because we are getting more data now on how things went um, over the Lunar New Year period, particularly in terms of spending. The total number of domestic trips by rail, road, water and air increased by 75.8% from, last, uh, from 2022's Lunar New Year although total trips were still 47% lower than the pre-pandemic levels uh, we saw in 2019. Revenue from consumption-related industries, though, grew by just 12.2% year-on-year. From January the 21st to January the 27th, 
That's data from the tax authorities showing that. And revenue from tourism and hospitality, which was hard hit, of course, by COVID-related domestic travel restrictions, jumped by 130% year-on-year, reaching 80.7% of pre-pandemic levels. Um, Andrew, what do you make of the data that we're seeing coming in now about how the Lunar New Year went? Is it, is it a sign that uh, China and China's economy is bouncing back? Well, I think they're encouraging signs, but I think there's still an awful lot of caution uh, amongst the Chinese public. Um, you know, we've still got the overhang of the property sector and, uh, and the growth is still going to be a, a concern for them. And we've, a lot of investors in the markets are putting a lot of faith, aren't they, on this so-called revenge spending that's going to really fuel this global um, rebound. Do you see that happening? I think there's potential from that, from, from the sort of richer elements of society there. But I think the, the middle class and uh, those poorer in society are probably still concerned over medical bills because there's no free health service in, in China. Um, and and the, uh, the potential for, you know, there's still, as I say, the, 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 the drawer or the, the, the worry over the property sector um, and certainly for those people paying mortgages who uh, may, not, uh, may not receive their units. There will be you know, obvious caution there. Simon, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree. I, I think, I mean, it's also it's slightly misleading to compare um, this year with last year. I mean, the percentages, obviously, this year is going to be much, much better, much more accurate to look at the pre-pandemic levels and we're still significantly below that. Mm. And... I expect, I mean, yes, consumption will come back, but I also think that for the average Chinese consumer, they'll probably be putting aside a little more on the, in their savings pot because their experience over the last three years is there's an awful lot of uncertainty and um, they'll be worried about what might happen if, for whatever reason, offices get closed, um, they get locked down again, and they'll want to put more money aside for a rainy day. So I think... Um, the revenge spending, there may be sort of a short-term blip, but longer term, it'll be a lot more gradual. But Chinese households, they're sitting on a record amount of savings, aren't they? But you don't think from what you're saying that really the consumers are going to go gangbusters and start dipping into that. They're more concerned now um, about things that have happened during the pandemic that really mean they need to keep those savings. Yes, they've, I mean, China still suffers from a lack of investment opportunities for sort of the average consumer, um, they'll be scarred by property prices um, mm. and those still remain very high and out of the reach of most people. Um, their domestic tourism travel is still very underdeveloped. I mean, you're still limited really to two holiday periods a year, Chinese New Year and then the national holidays in October. So until that sort of cultural dynamic starts to shift, you're not going to get the domestic tourism market that you see in most other developed economies. Andrew, the government wants to put consumer spending and consumption at the centre of the economy um, going forward. What, what have they got to do to, to encourage that to happen? Because if you look at consumer spending in China, it's far, far lower than uh, consumer spending as a percentage of the economy, say, in, uh, in places like the US. Well, I think, as we said there, I mean, it, it's, I mean, part of the reason they're sitting on extra spendings, I think, is that a lot of people have taken money out of what they considered risky investments uh, mm -hmm. and have put that into the bank. And the, the reality is for China that the property sector has always big, been the big driver of, of uh, domestic consumption. When people buy flats, they buy sofas, they buy cars, they buy all the things to put in them. Um, with this 
concern over the property sector and the fact that you know we still haven't seen um, the restructuring plan for Evergrande, who who really kicked it all off, I think means that you know people are just not going to not going to be at that active. Um, and as Simon was saying, I mean they will keep more in savings. What does this all mean from an investment perspective? Where we're seeing in stocks and bonds in China and emerging markets in general, and also some of the developed markets like the US having a very strong start uh, to, to 2023. Um, a lot of that is based, isn't it, on this rebound in China? Well, I think part of it is based on the fact that a lot of people were already underweight China um, and nobody was really expecting them to pivot quite so quickly on on removing the the COVID restrictions. I think the general consensus was it would probably be mid-year before they did that. So a lot of people have been caught short uh, and hence have been, uh, you know, maybe not piling in and getting back up to full weight, but at least making sure they have some exposure there. Yeah, I think there's a lot of catching up that people are doing it's coming off its its bottom um, if you sort of look at the CSI 300 and there's a lot of capital that is meant to be allocated towards China and now people are rushing to get in so that they just sort of don't miss the boat as it goes up so I think we'll see it it'll continue up for a little bit and then it'll flatten and level off but I mean it still has a long way to go to meet the rebound that sort of the US has experienced I mean the S&P 500 is only, I think, 15% off its uh, peak now, whereas the CSI 300 is still 40% away. And I think you've also got to realise that, you know, with, with the China market as it is, people have seen the fact now that policy can change very quickly. I mean, we've seen, you know, the property sector, we saw e-commerce, we saw education. Uh, and hence the risk premium that people are going to require for that political uncertainty, I think, is going to have to, to rise. Uh, and that's coming at a time when interest rates overseas have started rising, which means that, you know, you can put money in the bank and get a return on it. Well, we, were, we are seeing now, aren't we, real changes. But we had earlier in the year a lot of talk, but a lot of not, not a lot of action. But then in the last quarter, we did really see some quite um, profound policy changes in terms of uh, zero COVID, for example, support for the property sector. Has that fundamentally now changed the outlook for China's markets, both equity and, and bond markets, to the point that you can be a lot more confident um, about, uh, about the future? I think it's probably the reverse. I mean, I think the fact that they have made such startling changes uh, will worry investors that they could change again. Um, and so you've got to make sure that your investments are very much aligned with government policy. And it's got to be a... I mean, remember, I mean, reform of the property sector was a, was a core policy for them. And they've switched mm. that. Yeah, and I think, I mean, memories seem to be quite short. It's only under three months ago after the party congress. And immediately after that, the the sentiment in the corporate world was very negative, um, mm. feeling that just corporate China was under fire and wasn't going to be given free reign to grow. But the things investors are buying, they're placing a lot of faith in these policy changes. I mean, if you look at uh, some of the junk-rated dollar bonds of China's property developers, if you bought them six weeks ago, um, which was pretty well the bottom, they've rebounded 65% in, in six weeks. I mean, people really are putting a lot of faith uh, in these policy changes, and in effect, their investors aren't waiting for a rebound in home sales. They're, they're they're jumping in now before there has been any rebound. Well, I think you know you'll always get people that are prepared to take that heavier risk uh, for the rewards that, as you say, they 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 can see happening quite quickly. 
but realistically, China needs a long-term investment strategy. Um, it's going to require external money to do that, and it's going to have to be a little bit more liberal in order to attract that money in. There is obviously still an awful lot of money you know, that's, that's you know, kept within China, uh, and again, that needs to find a home. The other thing, Simon, that's uh, rebounding, obviously, is commodities seen big rebounds in co- copper, um, iron ore, other industrial metals, all again linked uh, to the, the rebound. I suppose the one risk of all of this is that if we do get this rebound, it's going to be quite inflationary, isn't it? It's not just for commodities, but for a whole range of things. Yes, and I mean, it does depend to some extent on how sort of Jerome Powell and the US manage their soft landing. Because, I mean, if the US goes into a recession, China is not going to be um, manufacturing as much as it perhaps would like to do. And um, those commodities are going to be softer than um, expected. So it's it's really sort of hopeful thinking, um, I think, in a large part. Mm-hmm. And you've also got to take into account that, you know, because of these lockdowns, a lot of countries no longer want to be wholly reliant on China for their supply chains. So, you know, they'll do China plus another country. Uh, and that, over time, I think is going to mean that China's share of that manufacturing is going to decline. And those other countries, particularly uh, countries like India, Vietnam, presumably this is a permanent shift of supply chains. Yes, I I think it is. I mean, there was a quite a sort of high-profile announcement yesterday that Jabil, one of the big um, sort of EMS electronic company contractors, has started making um, Apple components in India, which then get shipped for final assembly to China. Um, And that's quite big news in the sort of China plus one. And also, I mean, the number sort of on the shipping industry, the number of ships, sort of big container ships that have now been allocated towards Vietnam um, to manage exports from there and those trade volumes would previously have been from sort of China to the US. So these are, you're right Peter, these are long-term sort of permanent shifts. Mm. Well it's a big week for central banks. Uh, We've got the Fed meeting uh, today and tomorrow, then we've got the European Central Bank and the Bank of England meeting on Thursday. Investors are expecting the Fed to slow the pace of its monetary tightening to 25 basis points, which means uh, it would raise rates to between four and a half to four and three quarter percent. That's the highest level since September 2007. Um, Andrew, has the, has the Fed succeeded in bringing inflation down without tipping the economy into recession? Well, I think they're encouraging signs at the moment, but I mean, I think there's still an awful lot of inflationary pressures that are going to be hanging around for some time. And of course, you know, the, the key one there really is, is people's expectations uh, and how they approach, you know, wage, wage rises and wage negotiations. Um, I think they've been reasonably uh, clear in their message. I just wonder whether the market really does expect them to slow down or whether, as they've said, they will keep them higher for longer. Um, and, and may well continue to do that. I mean, the, luckily, I think the, some of the recent data has showed that they have scope, you know, to, to ease back on that uh, rate rises. Yeah, I think what they'll be looking for, there's a jobs report that comes out this week in the US as well. And I think what the Fed is really desperate to see is actually unemployment increasing um, because it's remained pretty static. And they want to see that their rate hikes are starting to actually squeeze companies and um, those inflationary pressures are going to start to ease. Uh, if you look though at the data, I mean, the data does show inflation is slowing, isn't it? But if you look at where inflation is, um, it's settling around 4%. That's double the Fed's target. 
can it get it back below that to, to the target? It seems a tall order, doesn't it? I think it will be very, very difficult in, you know, it, and, and hence Powell has been saying they're going to have to keep rates higher for longer uh, in order to uh, starve off those inflationary pressures. It, there, there will be no easy way of doing it. Yeah, and there's this 12, 18-month lag effect in terms of raising rates and actually impacting inflation. So, um, yes, I wouldn't expect any rate cuts this year. Is the US economy, is it doing better than expected in your, in your mind? I mean, there are some encouraging signs, but then at the same time, there are signs of uh, the consumers showing some stress, aren't they? We're seeing things like auto repossessions uh, jump higher, um, which is sort of a little bit of an anonymous sign. So where do you think we are? I think we're somewhat sort of on the fence and we can tip either way. So unemployment hasn't jumped, although we saw a lot of the big tech companies um, making um, headcount reductions. And have the interest rates really started biting into consumption? Um, no, that, that hasn't sort of come through yet. So it's still too early to tell which way it'll fall. And I think looking at the unemployment numbers, you've also got to realise that you know, a lot of those layoffs will be for middle-aged or older staff. Um, who are you know, more expensive than hiring new graduates. And again, you know, it, it's the quality of the workforce that's in employment that's going to be important. Well, finally, just before I let you go, let me, let me review some of the data that's coming out this week. Probably the most important for here is Hong Kong's GDP. Uh, Moody's are predicting it likely contracted 4% uh, year on year in the fourth quarter. That means the local economy contracted 3.6% across the year. Do you think we're, we, we've seen the worst now? I hope so. I mean, I think that, that, that the encouraging thing for Hong Kong, and whilst we still have some restrictions, but is the ability to, to bounce back. I think for tourism to bounce back, we have to remove masks and make it easier for people and, and more pleasant for people to come here. Yes, I think that's right. At the moment, all the travel has been reported going to Japan, going to sort of Macau, and there needs to be a reason for people to visit Hong Kong. And it's we're, we're a hub... Um, and we need to have everything open and people stop off and pass through. And that ease of access that we used to have needs to return. And it'll take time because the flights and the airlines have to start coming back and flight prices need to come down. Um, so it's not going to be instant. But certainly 2023 is going to be much better for Hong Kong than 2022 was. OK, thank you both very much. That's Simon Cavender, partner at BDA Partners. Andrew Sullivan, Managing Director at Outset Global. <laughs> Twenty-five on the phone from Tokyo is John Byrne, Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute. Morning, John. Good morning, Peter. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Happy Year of the Rabbits. We've been talking about um, China's reopening. Give me a sense um, of, of what it means for Japan, because obviously Japan's economy is very dependent on China, isn't it? It takes a lot of um, tourists from China. Uh, it has an impact on commodities prices. What's the impact going to be for Japan? Yeah, absolutely. I think the um, impact will be substantial in terms of um, the tourism numbers, for one thing, and this will help with the exchange rate effect. And also the increased demand from uh, China as a whole will not only help uh, Japanese exports, but exports uh, in the entire region. Um, so I think we can expect uh, strong um, growth effects coming out of Japan and other economies due to this opening up of China. And this will also be an important factor for 
contributing to global economic growth during 2023, where, of course, um, strong demand from China will be, will be very important. Have you seen signs that uh, Chinese tourists were coming back to Japan over the Lunar New Year holidays? Yes, there is certainly more um, activity in terms of, of tourists. Um, it's, it's very visible. Also, um, you know, in greater activity at the airport as well. So I think um, it will only be a matter of time before we see these effects um, coming out in, in the macro numbers over the next few months. I suppose one of the one of the downsides of this is that if the Chinese economy does rebound, the consumer comes back and embarks on his so-called revenge spending, it's going to be quite inflationary, isn't it, for the global economy because it's going to push uh, commodities prices up. And, of course, that's a problem for Japan where um, we're inflation in Japan now um, we're in the, uh, is at 4%. Yes, uh, you know, you, you make a good point. You know, the, the growth of, of China will contribute to demand and therefore there could be some inflationary effects, um, not only uh, in Japan, but also globally. Um, I think in the case of Japan, um, inflation is currently at 4%, which is the highest rate it's been at since 1981. And um, there are still question marks about whether uh, this is a, a sustainable uh, level of inflation and whether, you know, when energy prices drop down to a more sustainable level and food prices drop down to a more sustainable level, whether some of this inflation will slip out of the number. But um, certainly I think that, you know, if we're talking about inflation, um, Japan is actually trying to generate sustainable inflation. So I think it's uh, less of a worry for Japan than other countries. But what does it mean for the Bank of Japan? We're going to have a new governor um, nominated, aren't we, during February? Are we going to see a shift, shift in policy? Well, I think that, uh, as you know, in December, the you know yield curve uh, control policy was tweaked somewhat, whereby the the long rate uh, band was widened, and this was you know viewed by some market participants as a tightening in policy, basically, but. Um, it was all obviously communicated as, as a way of uh, enhancing uh, market functioning. So I think that by introducing that tweak then made the job of the new governor a little bit easier. So th- there's already some activity taking place as regards moves towards monetary policy and normalisation. And as you know, uh, the IMF's Article 4 was uh, com- concluded last week for Japan. And this also um, emphasised the need for flexibility in the monetary policy framework. So I think the new governor will have an easier job uh, than he would have had due to the um, tweak that took place in December, as well as uh, commentary, including by the IMF, on the need for flexibility. I mean, this has all taken the markets, though, by surprise, hasn't it? First, when it did tweak uh, the yield co- uh, control curve, and then at the last meeting, when it didn't, when everyone was expecting it to do um, more. I mean, investors have really been wrong-footed by this. That's right. I mean, I think the, the tweak in December was done on purpose when market liquidity was very low. So done over the, over the Christmas period, basically. Um, so as to have, uh, sort of a minimal impact, uh, in terms of disruption to the, to the, uh, to the markets and, and to the rates. Um, I think that, yeah, there, there's still some uncertainty as, as regards the trajectory of monetary policy going ahead for Japan. Um, they're still saying that, you know, it would be important to achieve wage rises of around 3%, and this will be consistent with the 2% inflation target. Um, so I think 
what materialises in the wage negotiations will be very key to what ultimately happens with monetary policy normalisation. John, thank you very much indeed. That's John Byrne, Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And in Japan right now, the Nikkei 225 is trading up 0.1%. Down in Australia, the SX200 up a third of a percent. Uh, the Cosby in South Korea is down 0.1%. does look like we're going to see a rebound uh, in Hong Kong stocks at the open. The Hang Seng projected to open about 50 points higher this morning. And thank you very much for listening to Money Talk this morning. I'll be back tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Coming up after the news is back chat with Jim Gould and Ada Wong. The weather forecast for today, sunny periods, maximum temperature of around 19 degrees. And the outlook is for those temperatures to rise further uh, with sunny intervals to tomorrow and a few rain patches in the following couple of days. It's 15 degrees right now, 58% relative humidity. Time's 8.31. With the news, here's Barry O'Rourke. Lawmaker Tony Tse says a mock-up of a light public housing flat he saw was quite appealing, and such temporary housing would mean a lot to people currently living in inadequate conditions. Yesterday, the government said by not including air cons in the flats, it could save around $200 million. The flats are intended for those in the queue for traditional public rental units. Mr Tse, who represents the architectural, surveying, planning and landscape sectors, said excluding air conditioners was reasonable, given that they also weren't provided in the traditional units. I think basically there are two reasons, I believe. The first is to cut the cost. And secondly, of course, at the moment, I think those traditional public rental housing won't include air conditioning. Would it set a precedent and maybe they have to be forced to provide air conditioning units for the traditional public rental housing? Cathay Pacific CEO Ronald Lamb says profitability is back on the radar for the airline and there's hope for the aviation industry in general after three pandemic-hit years, although he warned there were still challenges hindering a rapid return to normality. Hong Kong's flagship carrier expects to post a net loss of up to $7 billion in 2022, but Mr Lamb says an uptick in performance towards the end of the year gives cause for optimism. We have seen improvement in the second half of 2022 compared to the first half. And I'm very encouraged about that trend. And I'm very confident that the trend will continue for this year and we'll see continuous improvement in our performance. The U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, has warned Israel it will endanger its long-term security if it abandons efforts to resolve the escalating conflict with the Palestinians. He was speaking after talks in Israel with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Mr Blinken said moving away from a two-state solution would undermine prospects for peace. He urged both sides to restore calm. As we advance Israel's integration, we can do so in ways that improve the daily lives of Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. And that's crucial to moving toward our enduring goal of Palestinians and Israelis enjoying equal measures of freedom, security, opportunity, justice, and dignity. President Biden remains fully committed to that goal. We continue to believe that the best way to achieve it is through preserving and then realizing the vision of two states. 
and the final Boeing 747 jumbo jet has rolled off the production line in the US after five decades in which it transformed air travel. The very last 747, nicknamed the Queen of the Skies, will be delivered to Atlas Air later today and used for cargo. It's been superseded by more efficient two-engine planes. The 747 has carried hundreds of millions of passengers since first taking off in 1970. A Boeing historian said it had shrunk the world. And there'll be more news on the hour from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Jim Gould and your guest presenter is Ada Wong. Good morning, Ada. Good morning, Jim. On this morning's programme, uh, we're talking about light public housing, that is, uh, temporary housing for residents living in inadequate conditions while they're waiting for regular public flats to become available. The Housing Secretary, Winnie Ho, said yesterday that the government had already found all the land it needs for its plans to build 30,000 light public flats. Eight plots have been identified in Chaiwan, Kai Tak, Naochiwan, Tunmun, Siulam, Yunlong and Shengshui. The cheapest rent may be set at about $780 a month, 